This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Coming up, the numbers confirm a trend we've been telling you about for a while. Zoomers are working well past the traditional retirement age. We'll see how that works in real life. And... He's not retiring, but the man who launched the first billion-dollar fundraising campaign in Canadian healthcare is leaving his job. We talked to Paul Aloffs of the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The old saying goes, may you live to 120. Now, Israeli scientists are convinced they can top that by at least 20 years if science treats not only diseases, but also specifically tackles aging processes. They analyzed previous studies where researchers succeeded in delaying the aging of organisms like worms, flies, mice, rats, and even monkeys. They found the increase in the maximum age was almost identical to the rise in the average or median age, about 30%, hence the number 140. This work disputes findings last year from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which concluded the maximum human lifespan is about 115 years. A Japanese doctor who studied longevity and lived to 105 revealed his theory on long life shortly before his death. Up until last month, Dr. Hinohara, a national treasure in Japan, was still seeing patients. His best advice was energy comes from feeling good, not from eating well or sleeping a lot. He firmly believed there's no need to retire ever. He implored the medical profession to incorporate more music and animal therapy because patients need to have fun to forget about pain. There's an emerging demographic called the Grumpy Generation. Zoomers born between 1962 and 1971 are unhappier than previous generations. As people age, they tend to become more at peace with their finances. But an American study has found this middle-aged grumpy generation is unsatisfied and their unhappiness keeps growing. The explanation is that older Americans are hanging on to high-paying jobs longer, keeping the slightly younger 45- to 54-year-olds shut out. The results are in the University of Chicago's General Social Survey. When she was 16 in 2013, Bailey Sellers' dad passed away from pancreatic cancer. Before he died, Michael Sellers prepaid for flowers to be delivered every year on Bailey's birthday. This year, the Tennessee woman turned 21 and received her final bouquet and handwritten card. But Michael will be with Bailey for years to come. Before he died, he also embroidered handkerchiefs and asked that they'd be tied to her wedding bouquet. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
The latest census data show what Zoomers already know. More and more of us are working beyond the traditional retirement age. More than half of men and nearly 40% of women aged 65 and older were on the job in 2015. At the age of 70, nearly 3 in 10 men did some sort of work sometimes out of necessity and sometimes by choice. For Bill Van Gorder, it's a bit of both. The 74-year-old Halifax resident, who also happens to be a member of CARP's board of directors, epitomizes the trend. We chatted about his work life. I was 63 when I tried to retire, and it lasted for about three months, and I realized that I was not the retiring type. There were just too many things that I wanted to do. I went from having a full-time job and, and salary and that security to uh, first being in sales where I was on commission and then starting my uh, own business where I was responsible for everything that that entails. We are the Atlantic area distributors for a brand of Nordic walking poles and my involvement with CARP started about the same time. I was the founding chair for the Nova Scotia chapter. How much of this was a result of financial need as opposed to being bored? First of all, I'd worked for charities all my life, so I had my own savings, but I didn't have no no pension plans. And in 2008 and following, when the market tanked, so did my uh, savings and my investments. So it uh, it was necessary to keep on doing something to have some kind of income. Would it surprise you? that now, according to StatsCan, more than 53% of Canadian men aged 65 were working in some form, 2015, and that about 23% of them had a full-time job. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me at all that so many uh, people who are of the so-called retirement age are still working. Certainly, we see that in our CARP chapter members. I see that among my friends, and it's growing uh, all the time. And, you know, some of us are lucky, and and, uh, we do it uh, doing something we enjoy. And uh, the statistics also say that at the age of 70, 30% of men did some kind of work, and that's double the proportion of 20 years earlier. I'm not surprised at all that more people over 70, especially men, are continuing to work, and I think that's only going to grow. We are living longer. We're living healthier. We're able to do it. The old standard of 65 as a retirement age just doesn't hold water anymore. And as I talk to my friends and my peers, those who are able are expecting to continue to work well beyond their 70s. For women, the shift is dramatic. So 38.8% of women over 65 were working in some fashion, and that's twice the proportion of 20 years earlier. That's right. And more women uh, are working. And one of the issues with that is that single women or widowed women over the age of 65 have the highest rates of living at or below the poverty line. And that's a huge issue. And, you know, one of the things that we've been working for from a CARP point of view is to have more recognition of the the need for fairer treatment of uh, people who have not worked all their lives and now need an income to continue to live at a reasonable level. And unfortunately, uh, women of an age find that more of a challenge than men. 
What do you think government has to do for people like you who keep on working? What were the barriers and the problems? It used to be that people who were uh, over the age of 60 were not eligible for any kind of retraining. And that was just lifted. So governments have to recognize that the age of people stopping working is going up. The age of people who are starting businesses. In Nova Scotia, we know that 70% of the new businesses that are tried to start in Nova Scotia are started by people over 50 years of age. The government has to recognize that and understand that these seniors are productive. They want to contribute to the uh, economy, and they're not a drain on society. They're actually able to not only uh, contribute to the economy, but offer mentorship and leadership to younger people in the working world. For CARP, there is a big issue with mandatory RIF withdrawals, which means that people have to start dipping into their savings, whether they need them or not, at the age of 71. Yes, mandatory RIF withdrawals are a really good example where uh, an age was set that said that people should start cashing those in. Now it's patently unfair that somebody at an early age of 65 or 70 should have to start uh, cashing those in where they need to keep those savings because they're going to live another 20 years. And politicians have to take control of that situation. The other thing that the government needs to do at all levels is understand that this is a group of people who are contributing to the economy, and we have to look at supporting them in the same way that we look at other segments of the population and supporting them in the economy. Okay, Bill Van Gorder, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. That was Bill Van Gorder, Senior Spokesperson for CARP Nova Scotia. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, he's raised over a billion dollars to conquer cancer, and he says passion is the key. I'll speak with Paul Aloffs of the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. With the holiday giving season in full swing, it's the perfect time to check in with Paul Aloffs. He turned the words and the dream, conquer cancer in our lifetime, into more than a billion dollars raised for the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. He's leaving after 14 years at the helm. He dropped by our Liberty Village studios for a chat. After 14 years, I really feel like I've been able to accomplished many of the things that I set out to do when I originally arrived. And 14 years is a long time. So I think we're ready for some uh, new leadership and new energy, and I'm really excited about moving on. What are the things you set out to do, and what are the things that you accomplished in your view? Well, Princess Margaret is a gem of healthcare globally, of cancer care in particular, obviously. It wasn't widely known outside of the cancer community just how good Princess Margaret was. In addition, the research enterprise was relatively understaffed relative to its performance. So building out the research enterprise... When you arrived, I think the take on where Princess Margaret was at, that it was well-respected, but not that widely known. So what did you do to start to change that? I think really the idea that we would have a truly focused vision and ambition around the phrase to conquer cancer in our lifetime. That was something that everybody agreed was so important and that everybody could support. So we don't say cure 
cure cancer in our lifetime. We say conquer because we're losing good Canadians to cancer every day. But conquering cancer can mean uh, a pain-free death. It can mean uh, having a spiritually rewarding travel through the cancer system. It can mean uh, just delivering on the best that you can deliver in care, given how difficult, painful the situation is with cancer. The boldest thing you ever did is the billion-dollar campaign. I don't think that had been seen in Canada. It was a first to try to raise a billion dollars for a healthcare organization. So tell me about how did you come to decide to do that and, and how did you execute? Well, cancer is the most difficult disease that we face globally. And you can't really have the vision and mission and ambition to conquer cancer in your lifetime unless you bring the resources. And so a billion dollars seemed to be uh, a real challenge, but it's the kind of funding that truly lights up the innovation, the research and the clinical care. And so the billion dollars became a challenge, but to me, it, it matched up well with the challenge uh, that we face as Canadians with cancer. It attracted a lot of attention. Well, it did. One of the things we do at Princess Margaret is we have our key doctors and researchers meet with our donor community on a very regular basis. And when you give money to Princess Margaret, you have many opportunities to interact with the doctors, researchers, scientists who are using the money. And that's not true with many not-for-profit organizations. And the fact that individuals that want to support great work in cancer research can meet with Dr. Takmak and meet with Dr. Malcolm Moore, Mary Gospodoris, others, and hear them say, here's how I'm going to use the money. And then they, on a regular basis, they get to hear back about the things we've learned, where we've succeeded, where we failed. And I think that constant interaction with our clinical and research enterprise assures donors that they're getting the most impact for their money. But would you say that that flashy headline of a billion, you know, grabbed attention for both donors and other institutions around the world? Without question. You know, it was very ambitious to go after raising a billion dollars. But our ambition to conquer cancer in our lifetime is one of the most noble to me and one of the biggest and boldest visions that an organization or a group of individuals can have. How has philanthropy changed? Well, I think philanthropy has fundamentally changed. There are so many worthy causes that are really chasing individuals for donations and corporations and foundations. And what donors want to see nowadays is uh, impact and accountability. Whether you're giving $5 or $50 or $50 million, you want to know that the organization is taking the money and using it and delivering on the impact and that they're operating in both an efficient and an effective way. What should people look at to know that their money is having an impact? Well, one of the things we measure uh, is our research performance are citations in high-impact journals. That's a kind of a fancy way of talking about the most important discoveries in the highest impact and most important publications in the world. And we consistently rank in the top five in that measurement. We also look at the scale that we're able to deliver at Princess Margaret of Care. We see 1,000 patients a day but there's 73 surgeons that go into the surgical suites every day. We treat 200 individuals in our chemo daycare area, and 400 individuals, patients, receive radiation treatment every day at the Princess Margaret. In terms of the foundation itself, we have 70 full-time employees. We raise about $1.4 million per employee, and our administrative costs are about 10% of the funds that we raise, which make us a very efficient and effective foundation. 
You also run kind of uh, some mass events like the ride and the walk. So what is the relationship between, you know, somebody who does a walk and raises a relatively small amount of money and a big donor, a big rich person who donates millions of dollars? You know, people who donate millions of dollars are extremely important. But when you take an army of passionate individuals and, you know, sadly, one in two Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. So there's so many Canadians that have a personal cancer story. When you take that army of individuals um, raising 100 or 1000 or $2,500 each, it becomes a lot of money. For example, in our ride, over 10 years, we've raised $168 million in Ontario. And we also loan our ride to uh, BC Cancer, Alberta Cancer, and the Jewish General Hospital in Quebec. And it's the number one peer-to-peer fundraising event in the country. You've also written a book, Passion Capital. So you kind of have a formula for making things happen. My formula is the energy, intensity, and sustainability to create long-term success. And any organization, private sector, public sector, small or large, if you have passionate people that know how to put that passion to work, so it's more than just the emotion of passion, it is uh, this formula that I've developed. And it delivers energy, intensity, and sustainability, and that's what every organization needs to succeed. Okay. Paul Aloffs, thanks so much for that. Thank you. That was Paul Aloffs, outgoing president and CEO of the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation and author of the book, Passion Capital. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up... Tis the season to pay tribute to the man who joyously sang about the most wonderful time of the year. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. We begin on Broadway, where the band's visit tells the tale of an Egyptian police band stranded in a small village in Israel and is welcome to stay the night in a cafe. It's on at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre. Part of the unparalleled archive has gone on permanent display at Poland's Jewish Historical Institute, bearing eyewitness accounts of the emptying of the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II. In Paris, a restaurant called Au Naturel is offering the city its first naked dining experience, where clothes and cell phones are left at the door. Diners can Au Naturel, but the staff must be clothed. And at 20 by 8 feet, the largest painting done by American master Jackson Pollock has gone on display at the National Art Gallery in Washington. The work called Mural stands as one of the artist's greatest achievements. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Before we end today's program, we're going to get into the festive spirit here on the Zoomer Week in Review. It's that time of year. We're playing the greatest hits of the holidays on Zoomer Radio, and one of the most iconic and upbeat holiday hits comes from Andy Williams, who was born on December 3, 1927. He's best remembered for two things, singing the hit song Moon River and his annual Christmas television specials and the albums that went with them, earning him the nickname Mr. Christmas. In 1963, Andy was the first artist to record this song, written by Edward Pola and George Weil. It's the most wonderful time of the year. 
It's the most wonderful time of the year. That was Andy Williams with It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And he was born on December 3rd, 1927. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.